0: congressional leaders are trying to convince more conservative and more progressive lawmakers to approve the debt ceiling deal reached this weekend. It's Tuesday, May 30th. This is Marsh Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Chenoy. Coming up, the push to change some of Massachusetts's secrecy laws, which were intended to protect victims of domestic violence, but instead protected police officers accused of abuse. Also this hour,
1: we have a tremendous number of people moving around in this country. You look at coastal states, people moving here from non-hurricane-prone areas, they don't even know what their
2: risk is.
0: Storm experts are worried that population shifts and complacency could make hurricane season a tough one this year. And we explore the wildlife of flooded maple tree forests in northern Vermont. In sports, the Celtics' historic comeback falls short with a Game 7 loss to the Heat. Sunny in the 60s today.
2: It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The House Rules Committee will examine the tentative agreement today that would raise the federal government's borrowing limit. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy struck the deal over the weekend. NPR's Deirdre Walsh says both sides compromised. So it lifts the debt ceiling for two years, most notably past the
3: 2024 presidential election. The deal includes spending caps for non-defense programs for the next two years. It would keep funding levels at the same, roughly at
2: the same level for 2024, and those non-defense programs would get a 1% boost in 2025. NPR's Gerger Walsh reporting. The full House is expected to vote on the deal by tomorrow. The Senate would take it up after that. The federal government is expected to breach its debt limit by June 5th, unless Congress acts. A federal judge in Texas will hear arguments this week about the future of DACA. NPR's Joel Rose reports the judge has previously found the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program illegal.
4: DACA has been basically frozen in place since Judge Andrew Hanen ruled nearly two years ago that the program is unlawful. The Obama-era policy protects immigrants who were brought to the country illegally as children, shielding them from deportation and allowing them to work legally. Judge Haynan sided with Texas and other states that argue the program is illegal. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals mostly agreed, but it sent the case back to Haynan for more proceedings about a DACA regulation that was issued last year. There are roughly 600,000 DACA recipients who can renew their status for now while the case plays out. But the program is not taking any new applicants. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington.
2: The Republican-led Texas State Senate is now preparing for the impeachment trial of Texas Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton. He's accused of bribery and misconduct in office. He denies this. The Texas House impeached him on Saturday. The start of Paxton trial will come before the end of August. Ukrainian officials say Russia launched more than 30 drones at Ukraine early this morning. At least 20 were aimed at the capital, Kyiv. NPR's Joanna Kikisis reports from Kharkiv the strikes killed at least one person and injured more than a dozen others.
3: Ukraine's military said it shot down nearly all the drones. Wreckage from one drone hit a building, sparking a fire. Kiev Mayor Vitaly Klitschko told local TV that the repeated drone and missile attacks have resulted in Ukrainians hating Russia even more. A few hours later, eight drones targeted Moscow. Russia's air defense says they shot down all the drones. Moscow's mayor says some residential buildings were damaged and one person was injured. The Kremlin blames Ukraine for the attacks, but an advisor to President Volodymyr Zelensky says the Ukrainian government is not involved. Joanna Kekesis, NPR News, Kharkiv. This is NPR.
0: I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBOR in Boston. More now on the Celtics' loss last night in Game 7 of the NBA Eastern Conference Finals. Boston fell short on its effort to become the first basketball team to ever win a playoff series after being down 3-0. They lost to the Miami Heat at the Garden 103-84. Boston fell behind in the first quarter and never recovered. Here's head coach Joe Missoula after the game.
5: Obviously, we didn't achieve our goal. We didn't win, uh, which was our goal. So uh, we failed in that regard. But it's not because the guys didn't have a sense of togetherness, character, um, you know, and just who they are as people. WB
0: War's Simone Rios was in the garden for the game. He says the mood was electric at the start of the game, but that changed fast.
6: The crowd was more and more pacified as the night went on, and then, it, you know, as time winded down, it just became more and more funereal. By the seven minutes to go mark, people were were filing out, and then, and then came the booze.
0: The Celtics haven't won a title since two thousand eight. That's despite making it to at least the conference finals in four of the last six years. Special elections will take place today in two Boston legislative districts. Voters will cast their ballots for the ninth and 10th Suffolk House seats. Democrats in both races are running uncontested. John Moran is expected to replace former Representative John Santiago. Bill McGregor is expected to win the seat formerly held by Ed Coppinger. One of Massachusetts' ultimate summer treats may be harder to source locally for the next few months. WBUR's Yasmeen Ammer reports there's less local catch on the market for a classic buttery lobster roll.
7: Massachusetts lobster fisheries are coming off the heels of a three-month closure. It was state-mandated to protect endangered right whales. Beth Cassoni, executive director of the Massachusetts Lobstermen's Association, says a lot of what's for sale right now is imported. So, when a consumer walks into a restaurant, if they don't smell seafood, cooked seafood, lobster boils, then it's primarily a frozen processed lobster meat, and that is coming from Canada. Kassoni says it's going to take time for local lobster to be more available. She says imported lobster rolls cost about 20 to 40 bucks a piece, depending on size, about the same price as the fresh local stuff. 490.9 WBUR.
0: I'm Yasmin Ammer. You might see some hazy skies throughout the day today. The National Weather Service says smoke from a wildfire in Nova Scotia will affect the air here. There are no air quality alerts in place yet, even though you may be able to smell the smoke as well as see it. It's seven oh six. We're funded by you,
8: our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast, OceanStateJobLot.com. And Babson, top-ranked in entrepreneurship by U.S. News and World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges, babson.edu slash MBA.
0: The Red Sox are back home tonight to play the Cincinnati Reds, and in your forecast, sunny with a high in the 60s, today. Clear overnight and in the 40s. Sunny tomorrow and near 80. We could hit 90 on Thursday and Friday. Right now it's 55 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR.
9: WBUR supporters include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org.
10: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. i Martinez in Culver City, California.
11: And I'm Leila Faudel in Washington, D.C. Conservative Republicans in the House Freedom Caucus and Liberal Democrats in the Progressive Caucus have found common ground on one thing. They oppose a debt ceiling compromise that President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy agreed to over the weekend. And together, objections on the right and on the left could jeopardize passage of the deal in Congress. We've called up a member of the Freedom Caucus, South Carolina Republican, Republican, Republican Congressman Ralph Norman to understand why he objects to the deal. Good morning, Congressman. Thank you for being on the program.
12: My pleasure, Lava. Thank you.
11: Well, now you've called this deal insanity. Can you explain why?
12: Yes, insanity because, one, uh, if we don't get our spending under control, then this country cannot exist as we know it. Uh, the 32 trillion and counting is what we owe now. I would argue it's a lot more, but uh, When we saw this bill in writing, which we've just gotten within the last 24 hours mm-hmm. It was nothing like the bill that we had proposed as an example the limit on the debt ceiling We had at 1.4 trillion and we had cuts to offset that uh, what? McCarthy agreed to is basically taking the caps off. He can This Biden administration can spend anywhere from four to and up. It was no limit uh, what he can spend and he transfers it. He's able to do that until after the presidential election.
11: Now, House Speaker—oh, sorry, go ahead.
12: No, I mean, I could go on and on, but that's the main—when I saw that, that was a non-starter.
11: Now, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says 95 percent of Republicans in Congress are on board with his deal, the deal that he's come up with with President Biden. You're not among them, and you are on the House Rules Committee, which has an important role in moving the bill forward. Do you intend to try to stop this bill from moving forward in the House?
12: We're going to have to have amendments. I know uh, McCarthy won't. Uh, Speaker McCarthy won't say close rule with no amendments. The bill as is is unacceptable. Hmm. And you know, I'm new on the committee. Chip Roy is new. Thomas massey I think, is has been on there. But uh I'm just not prepared to vote for this if we don't get uh, if, if to surrender all of the, the the basics of what we had in the. Limit, save, and grow is unacceptable, right. and you're turning the keys over to an administration that's proven to be compromised and and corrupt, and it's just um, it's, it's not acceptable. To, the American people deserve better than this.
11: Now, to be clear, this is money that's already been spent under the Biden administration, but also under the Trump administration. And a lot of Americans, Republicans, Democrats, independents are scared about what a default could mean when it comes to how they pay their bills. Is a deal you view as bad worth throwing the U.S. government into default or risking the economy?
12: No, I don't think we're not going to default. But -hmm. now the question is, why did the Biden administration basically dither and not meet for over 100 days? What purpose that the Janet Yellen has moved the date now from June one, in her opinion, to June fifth. Right. And it always boils down to, you know, if it were that important, deal with it early. And what Kevin McCarthy should have done is, when he got back, basically a compromise of everything that we, that all Republicans, uh, two hundred eighteen, voted for. Not one single Democrat voted for it. And when we got back basically a gutting and a surrender of all of the principles in the in our plan, then, you know, you've got to take action and, and we will do that.
11: So what's the path forward here? Have you spoken to the House Speaker about possible amendments? I mean, is that a possibility here?
12: Well, the Rules Committee, we'll find out today, we're meeting at three. And so we'll find out. But there's got to be amendments on it. There's not going to be a closed rule unless something else is presented. This. To, to give this administration a free reign at, on the vault of America is, is just unacceptable. And uh, his his goal is to spend every dollar and no cuts. I mean, you got to remember, this this administration said not a dollar in cuts. That's unacceptable.
11: But there were cuts in the deal, right, even though they said that?
12: There were no no substantial cuts. It wasn't even close to getting this country out of the debt that we're in.
11: Republican Congressman Ralph Norman represents South Carolina's 5th District. Thank you for the, your time, sir.
10: My pleasure. The Memorial Day holiday launched was expected to be an extremely busy summer travel season. Now, for the past 10 years, NPR's David Shaper has covered the economics of the transportation and travel industries and how we get around. He'll soon be moving on, but he joins us today for a final conversation about transportation. Uh, David, all right, we often get dire warnings about travel and safety on the road and in the air. So, for the last few people trying to make their way home from Memorial Day getaways, how's the traffic been for them?
13: Well, you know, the roads and highways were pretty bad at times. I experienced firsthand Friday afternoon heading out of town here in Chicago at a peak getaway time. But, you know, more people are shifting their travel. They're leaving earlier ahead of the holiday weekend or staying a little bit longer to avoid driving at peak times and facing all that highway congestion. You know, that's happening with air travel, too. Uh, as far as uh, flight disruptions, there were very few flight delays and cancellations, relatively speaking. Well below 1% of all flights ca- were scheduled were canceled over the weekend. Even though we had the highest numbers of people flying since the pandemic began, and that's really a remarkable turnaround for the airline industry, which has struggled to meet a surge in demand last summer, starting with last Memorial Day weekend.
10: You know, Scott Kirby, the United Airlines CEO, was on the program last week and he told Mm -hmm. us one of the biggest constraints on air travel is not enough air traffic controllers. And you spoke with a transportation secretary, Pete Buttigieg. How are he and the FAA addressing that?
13: Well, you know, the FAA says it's short about 3,000 air traffic controllers, and the shortages are greatest in areas with the most congested airspace, including the New York New York area, which as of this spring had only 54% of the air traffic controllers it needs. Buttigieg says the agency is hiring hundreds of controllers to fill those critical jobs, but it's just not a quick, simple process to train them. See, to be an air traffic controller in a complex airspace, it takes not just a year of training to have the job in general, but at least another year to learn that geography in particular. And that's part of why the long ripple effects of COVID are still with us, even uh, long after uh, some of the worst days of the pandemic are behind us. So, Buttigieg and uh, the FAA have uh, asked, airlines to reduce the number of flights they're flying into and out of New York, Washington, D.C., and a few other places. Many airlines have agreed to do that and are just using bigger planes so they still can cut flights but meet that increased demand.
10: What about weather delays? I mean, we seem to be getting more of those.
13: Yeah, you know, climate change is bringing more severe weather more often, and that affects air travel operations significantly. You know, from hurricanes and thunderstorms to wildfires and blizzards, we've seen a runway flooded and closed for several days recently in Fort Lauderdale. Runways and roadways have been buckling under extreme heat Judge says it's forcing officials to look at infrastructure in new ways to make it all more resilient to withstand stream weather, extreme weather. And he, he added that we can't design an airfield or a highway for the in the 2020s the same way it was in, in the 1950s. You mentioned infrastructure. Uh, President Biden's uh, big infrastructure spending law, how's that been going? Well, you know, it is a game changer in the amount of funding devoted to fixing buildings. Bro- uh, uh, bridges, highways, railways, transit systems, and airports—it's—it's it's pri- it's prioritizing re- resiliency and making more equitable, uh, equitable infrastructure investments, and doing some of the harms from years past. But you know, inflation is eating a big chunk of the one trillion dollar plan. Costs for materials like concrete and steel have skyrocketed, so too of labor and equipment costs. So, you know, it might ha- not have the same impact that Congress and the White House intended.
10: David, you've covered all sorts of news throughout your 20-plus years at NPR. Transportation, though, has been your main beat for the past decade. What do you think has been the most significant transportation story during that time?
13: You know, for me, it's the Boeing 737 MAX plane crashes Mm -hmm. in Indonesia in 2018 and Ethiopia in 2019. You know, Boeing put in a flawed flight control system with just a single point of failure, something that should never happen in aviation. They hid it from regulators and pilots who didn't know how to respond when it erroneously forced those planes into steep nosedives. It, really, it's a, it's a travesty. And the families of the 346 people who were killed in those crashes feel as though Boeing might never be held fully accountable.
10: That's NPR transportation correspondent David
13: Shaper. David, thanks. You know, it's been a pleasure. Hey, Thank you. In the state of
11: Georgia, summertime means peaches. But roughly 90% of the crop has been destroyed. As Sam Greenglass reports from WABE, weather and climate get the blame.
14: The last time things were this bad was 1955. That's according to Lawden Pearson of Pearson Farm in Fort Valley, Georgia.
15: I didn't see it. I want not alive. My dad was only six. My grandfather picked
14: two
4: peaches and they went to California for the summer.
14: Peaches require a minimum number of chill hours, below 45 degrees, to set fruit. But the first three months of this year were the warmest on record in Georgia, and chill hours here have been declining over the years. That is climate change. Growers are experimenting with new varieties that need fewer chill hours. Some of those did get the cold they needed, but right when they were blooming, a spurt of unlucky freezing weather.
4: You have a low-chill peach that was perfectly fine with this winter. So it bloomed, and then it got four nights under 28. Can't win either way.
14: So don't count on sinking your teeth into a peach from the peach state anytime soon. Not Georgia peaches, Uh uh-uh. I don't think you'll see Georgia peaches in a grocery store. Pearson's summer staff will be down to 40 from the typical 250. He can't retreat to California like his grandfather did in 55. The business has diversified, including a growing pecan crop. But Pearson says looking at trees with no peaches is painful. Oh, God. Yeah. One bright spot, the few that do make it benefit from having all the sun, water, and nutrients to themselves.
4: The peaches you're left with sometimes are fantastic and they're huge and they're, sweeter than like The peaches we have are awesome. It just leaves you want more.
14: Pearson's ready for August when peach season is over and he can look to next year. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta.
11: This is NPR
0: News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, hurricane season begins this week, and forecasters have used modeling to improve their predictions, but increasingly, they're worried about the human factor. It's seven nineteen. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at wbur.org slash cars.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty. On stage now through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Tech Fusion Ransomware, helping you when your data is held hostage through ransomware and cyber attack. Tech Fusion, where data is never lost.
10: The debt ceiling deadline is quickly approaching.
17: If they actually default, that's catastrophic. I mean, the markets will respond. um, You know, people may actually not get a check.
10: Personal finance columnist Michelle Singletary on what it means for your money if the U.S. government can't pay its bills. I'm Anthony Brooks. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Sunny with a high near 68 today. Tonight, mostly clear and a low around 48. Tomorrow, sunny and warmer with a high near 78. It's 56 degrees in Boston at 720.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
11: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faudil.
10: May Martinez, the southern Ukrainian city of Kherson was the lone regional capital seized by Russia in the early days of the war. Ukraine's forces were able to retake the city last winter, but not the land south of the Dnipro River, a key waterway. On a recent visit to Kherson, NPR's Joanna Kakissis found Ukrainian fighters who have been quietly laying the groundwork to reclaim that land in a new counteroffensive.
3: Before the war, the Dnipro River was a source of joy and life on both sides of the riverbank. Locals picnicked on the forested river islands and gardened at their weekend cottages
19: there. A
3: 49-year-old soldier named Alex told me he used to host big barbecues for families and friends on his 17-acre farm near the river's
19: marshlands. Now
15: the Russians are on my land. They are living in my home. They're drinking my water.
19: But, Alex
15: predicts,
3: not for long.
19: I can tell you
15: this, that the counteroffensive here has started and is ongoing.
3: Russian forces occupy around 15% of Ukraine's land in the east and south. In the Kherson area, the Dnipro River is the front line. NPR spoke to Alex and three other fighters in Kherson, crossing that front line and preparing for a big battle to get their land back. They all declined to give their last names for security reasons, and Alex says they also cannot discuss specific details about their missions.
15: All I can say is that generally today we may be here and tomorrow we may be on land that the enemy occupies.
3: The fighters live in the city of Kherson, liberated last November. Russian shells and missiles hit the city nearly every day. Russian snipers shoot anyone approaching the river or the bridge. More than 260 civilians have died in the area since November. We meet Alex and his wife Svetlana outside an iron gate pockmarked by Shelling. Alex is tall, hornstock thin, and always cracking jokes. Svetlana says nearly everyone she knows has fled her since its liberation.
0: My friends told me, like, are you
18: crazy? This is too dangerous. But you know, I believe that if it's your fate to
3: die, you will die anyway. We follow Alex and Svetlana into a small house surrounded by fragrant lilacs. The house belongs to the wife of another special forces fighter. The two couples live together. Inside, Alex and the other fighter, who goes by his call sign, Michelle fry schnitzel for lunch. They met last summer, when the city of Kherson was still occupied by Russian forces. Oh, Michelle says they hid for weeks on the many islands that dot the Dnipro, ambushing Russian soldiers. He says his team attacked from the river, while Alex struck from the
10: woods.
9: He was known as a snake, and we were lizards or
10: turtles, meaning we could work on both land and water.
3: Alex can't swim and says he feels at home, in the forest. He learned to navigate forests as a child, growing up in the Carpathian mountains of western Ukraine.
15: For me, a forest here is like a park back home. It's small. My wife and I used to go mushroom hunting all the time. They always worried that I would get lost. But it's impossible for me to lose my bearings here.
3: Alex has been fighting Russian forces since 2014 when Russian proxies took over parts of eastern Ukraine. Over the last year in Kherson, he says he has helped locate Russian military camps and weapon stockpiles. He also admits to killing Russian soldiers and taking their
15: weapons. Ammunition was also running low, so we needed it.
3: And the Russians, he says, do not strike him as very good soldiers.
15: They would fire randomly. And if we went in and started shooting, they would kill each other. They seemed to have no training. A few
3: miles away from Alex's home, near a suburban park outside the city, we meet two more Ukrainian soldiers, said he and Andriy, who are part of a reconnaissance team. They're both in their 40s, said he, is a cheery former park ranger. Like the special forces, his unit also spends a lot of time on the river islands.
20: This is the closest
21: we can get to the enemy, to see their movements with our own eyes.
3: But the stakeouts, he says, are very risky.
21: The shelling is constant. Attack
22: drones are flying over our
10: heads. There are also drones recording our location and on the other side there are Russian soldiers in tanks ready to strike with artillery or mortars at the slightest movement.
3: The other soldier, Andrey, is the battalion's deputy commander and tactician. He says launching a major military attack across a river is very complicated and his team is trying to make it easier.
15: We have destroyed
22: enemy sabotage groups that tried to cross the river. We have destroyed some of the enemy's equipment. We have fortified
4: our positions along the coast.
3: And he adds, his reconnaissance team has also secured positions on the other side of the river, the occupied side. Ukrainian authorities say Russian forces have been evacuating residents from the occupied side and forcing them to apply for Russian (inaudible) passports.
19: Alex, the special (inaudible)
3: forces fighter we met earlier, sees this as a sign that the Russians are weakened. He predicts that the counteroffensive will be effective and quiet.
15: Don't expect some scene out of World War II Like millions of soldiers swimming across the Dnipro River, everything will happen like it's supposed to.
3: He says he's confident enough to start planning this summer's barbecues at his home across the river on the land now occupied by Russia. Joanna Kakises, NPR News, Herson.
10: This is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. Massachusetts lawmakers are trying to change laws that were meant to protect victims of domestic violence, but instead protected police officers from accountability. It's 7.29. Join WBUR on Thursday, June 8th at the Somerville Theater for the Moth Mainstage featuring live music and true stories. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, presenting the first American production of The Lehman Trilogy. Winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play, this marvel of theatrical storytelling is an intimate saga about a family and a monumental expose of unbridled capitalism. Starts June 13th at the Huntington Theatre, Huntingtontheater.org, and Metro S Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick.
4: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. A vote in the House is expected tomorrow night on the debt ceiling agreement reached between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. The deal prevents a default and imposes spending caps for the next two years. NPR's Vincent Acovino says some Republicans are expressing support for the agreement.
14: On a call with reporters, a handful of Republicans threw their support behind the proposed debt ceiling deal. Congressman French Hill of Arkansas argued that the deal is a compromise, but still a win for the party.
12: We all wish it were perfect. We all wish that it had every element that every Republican wanted. But uh, I think we'll go and individually have those conversations with our members.
14: Republican John Rutherford of Florida opted for an analogy.
12: We can't throw a Hail Mary pass on every play. This is like a what a sixty-yard pass,
14: maybe. This optimism comes despite some members of the far-right Freedom Caucus blasting the deal. Vincent Acavino, NPR News.
4: Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the U.S. could default as early as June 5th if Congress doesn't raise the debt limit. Authorities in Davenport, Iowa say nobody was killed in Sunday's partial collapse of a six-story apartment building, though some residents are unaccounted for. The back section of the structure gave way as work was being done on the exterior. The cause is under investigation. This is NPR News.
0: This is WBR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shinoi. Tourist destinations around New England are expected to struggle again this summer to fill all their seasonal jobs. That includes locations on the Cape. The Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce says there's a lack of foreign workers who rely on temporary visas. WBOR's Zinjor Emomeko reports numbers haven't rebounded since the beginning of the pandemic.
7: Here's an example of the labor shortage. Before the pandemic, the Cape had about 5,000 workers on J-1 visas in the summer. But this summer, the region has less than half that. Paul Nedzwicki of the Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce says staffing will impact service at many businesses.
6: They'll see potentially longer waits to uh, get into restaurants, for example, or restaurants that are No longer open seven days a week. They're open six or five days. Or restaurants that used to serve lunch and dinner that only served
0: dinner.
7: Ned wiki says a lack of housing has made it tough to bring in seasonal workers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zinin and Wameka.
0: One-third of people in the Boston area are struggling to find enough to eat. That's according to a new report from the Greater Boston Food Bank. It finds that in May of 2022, about 20 percent of people had very low food security. In those cases, eating patterns were disrupted for long periods of time. Researchers who worked on the study tell The Boston Globe the rollback of pandemic-era food benefits is partly to blame. Deer Island remains closed to the public today. A windmill that was out of service started spinning uncontrollably yesterday. Officials were able to stop the turbine. They say strong winds probably broke its braking mechanism. There's no word on when the island could reopen. In sports, the Celtics amazing season is over. They lost the Miami Heat 103-84 last night at the Garden in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals. Boston was trying to become the first NBA team to ever win a series after trailing three games to none, but fell short. Miami will take on Denver in the finals. The Red Sox are at Fenway tonight to face the Cincinnati Reds. Sunny and a high in the upper 60s today. Tonight it mostly clear skies and it may dip into the 40s. Tomorrow, sunny and upper 70s. now it's 56 degrees in Boston at 733. You're with WBUR.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com.
10: This is morning edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California.
11: And I'm Leila Fadil in Washington D.C. Thursday marks the beginning of the Atlantic hurricane season that's likely causing some anxiety in Southwest Florida where communities are still rebuilding from the devastation of Hurricane Ian in September. More than 150 people died and it was the third costliest hurricane in US history. This year, the National Hurricane Center is rolling out new tools to alert the public of the risks posed by storms. But as NPR's Greg Allen reports, accurate forecasts alone are not enough to prevent deaths from hurricanes and tropical storms.
1: The National Hurricane Center's Deputy Director Jamie Rome calls it the story about Hurricane Ian that never got told. It's that despite the high death toll and the level of destruction, the center's meteorologists did a good job forecasting the hurricane's track, intensity, and the areas at risk from storm surge. Rome recalls the advisory issued five days before Ian made landfall.
23: A major hurricane
1: is going to move in the eastern Gulf of Mexico and likely impact the west coast of Florida. Rome says the early warnings likely saved numerous lives. Hurricane forecasts have greatly improved over the last decade, largely because of better data from satellites, buoys, and aircraft, along with more powerful computers and sophisticated modeling. Even so, in Hurricane Ian, many people on the coast underestimated the threat of storm surge. In a presentation at a recent hurricane conference, Rome played video of a cottage on Fort Myers Beach as it's engulfed by a rapidly rising storm surge. The house is swept off its foundation and eventually washed away in the 15-foot flood. Amazingly, people who were in the house survived. Forty-one people are known to have died in Ian's storm surge. But despite evacuation orders, many decided to stay in their homes. One reason Rome believes is that too often people focus on the storm's wind speed, its category number on the Saffir-Simpson scale. The primary reason we evacuate in this country is because of storm surge, yet we are absolutely enamored as a country with the Saffir-Simpson scale. It is a wind scale. You've got to stop focusing on the wrong things. The deaths in Ian were the most seen in Florida from a storm since the 1935 Labor Day hurricane. Rome says that's because Ian hit a densely populated area. More than 150,000 people were at risk from storm surge, he says, so the death toll could have been much higher. Director of the National Hurricane Center, Mike Brennan, says although storm surge has the greatest potential to cause the most deaths in a single day, in recent years, more deaths have been caused by freshwater flooding, sometimes far inland. It can happen anywhere. It's almost entirely unrelated to how strong a storm is. So a tropical depression, the remnants of a system, if they sit over an area long enough, can produce deadly freshwater flooding. To better communicate the risk from flooding, the National Hurricane Center has made improvements to its storm surge models. This year, it's also expanding its tropical weather outlooks from five to seven days. Florida State University meteorologist Allison Wing says the enhanced outlook should give people more time to get their hurricane plans in place.
8: It gives you just a kind of
18: a little bit more lead time in thinking about, all right, within the next week, are we expecting anything
7: to happen?
1: A major factor meteorologists are watching closely this year is the likely development in the Pacific of a strong El Nino climate pattern. That has global implications, including higher-than-normal temperatures worldwide. Typically, El Ninos tend to suppress the development of hurricanes in the Atlantic. But this year, Colorado State University forecaster Phil Klotzbach is expecting hurricane activity to be just slightly below normal. The reason? The Atlantic right now is extremely warm, much warmer than normal for this time of year. And so normally when the Atlantic is warm, that tends to favor above normal activity. As meteorologists and emergency managers like to say, it only takes just one. Damaging hurricanes have made landfall even in relatively quiet El Nino years. Looking back at the loss of life in Hurricane Ian, National Hurricane Center Director Mike Brennan says his biggest worry is complacency. You know, we lost a lot of people in Katrina in 2005 because they didn't think it would be worse than Camille was. We have a tremendous number of people moving around in this country. You look at Florida, you look at other coastal states, people moving here from non-hurricane prone areas. They don't even know what their risk is. Hurricane season runs from June 1st to November 30th. Greg
10: Allen, NPR News, Miami. Spring bird migration is fully underway across the U.S. Species are traveling to nesting grounds in the north. NPR's Brian Mann took a paddling trip into a wildlife refuge in northern Vermont meant to shelter birds as they make their journey. And he sent us this audio postcard. We set off at first light
23: paddling with the current down the Missisquay River. And almost at once we're in a different world. It's not like there's a bird song here and a bird song there. It's just this kind of wash of sound. My paddling partner today, my guide really, is Catherine Seidenberg. She grew up here in Vermont. She's an experienced outdoors woman and naturalist, and it's her canoe carrying us into the wildness.
16: It's a little bit more magical being on the river to see the world in a way that we just wouldn't naturally I guess that's what
23: it is. Catherine moves us with small, skillful touches of her paddle through islands of grass and ostrich ferns. The Missisquoi National Wildlife Refuge was created in the 1940s as a habitat for migratory birds, and there are birds everywhere. We see great blue herons stalking their prey. A kingfisher flies a kind of curtsying path along the riverbank. As the sun climbs, red-winged blackbirds move in the grass so close they can perch on the edge of our paddles. The sun is shining right through these fresh leaves and ferns. There is a kind of stained glass window light falling over us. As the Missisquoi flows into Lake Champlain, it unravels into wetlands, swamps, veins of narrow water. It looks more like a bayou in Louisiana than a New England river. The water's high enough that the forest is flooded here. And so we're paddling in among the trees. This part of the trip is extraordinary. Catherine guides the canoe into the forest, into a shadowy maze of maple and oak. We're no longer looking at the wildness. We're in it. Under the tree canopy, the spring warmth fades, and you can feel the cold of the snowmelt river. A big woodpecker sounds, and then a flight of geese.
16: It's a rare opportunity to to be in a totally wild place like this. And also, you have to brave water and cold and
23: wind. We turn back into the shelter of the marsh, and I ask Catherine why she comes to places like this.
16: I guess the quiet and the solitude. It's open and peaceful, and mostly it's wild.
23: The sun is high overhead now and warm, almost like summer. Before heading for home, we just float a while, drifting and listening. Brian Mann, NPR News, on the Missisquoi River in Vermont.
10: This is NPR News.
0: It's a Tuesday on WBUR. Coming up at 810, the first civilian astronaut from China is in orbit this morning. It's the first step in China's big plans for space travel in the 21st century. Sunny in upper 60s today. Skies may get a bit hazy from wildfires in Nova Scotia. Tonight, it may fall into the 40s. Tomorrow, clear skies in upper 70s. Right now, it's 56 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by
16: Ocean State Job Lot. Partnering with customers to help animal welfare organizations throughout the Northeast, OceanStateJobLot.com and BMW, the BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW.
0: Expect plenty of company driving north on 93 and 95 in the coming months. A large number of tourists are expected to travel to New Hampshire this summer. Michelle Cruz heads the Mount Washington Valley Chamber of Commerce. She recommends people looking to experience the great outdoors do so with a professional guide.
7: We've got guides for fishing, hiking, climbing, kayaking, canoeing, mountain biking, whatever it is you want to do. We want people be able to experience the outdoors and really enjoy it and do it
2: safely.
0: Cruz says there was a large spike of tourists last year compared to the first two years of the pandemic. She's reminding people that the state has a leave no trace policy that means don't leave any garbage behind. Maine's fishing community is coming off another successful season of harvesting baby eels. The tiny fish are known as elvers. The state's Elver Fisherman Association hit its annual elver limit of 10,000 pounds earlier this month. This year, they went for about $2,000 a pound. Elvers are valuable to Asia-based companies that raise them for use in seafood dishes like sushi. Overfishing has made them increasingly hard to source. It's 744. Video games can get a bad rap when it comes
24: to kids and mental health, but their impact on child development is often misunderstood. You can use games to improve your social connections and to practice feeling emotions that we normally avoid, like guilt or grief or shame. Hear that story on All Things Considered from NPR News.
2: Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from EBSCO with EBSCO Community, where libraries and library service providers come together to share ideas around open access, open source, and open infrastructure at communities.ebsco.com. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios, Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR.
0: This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Chakravorty. Legislators are looking to make changes to a Massachusetts law that keeps secret all police records of domestic and sexual violence. That's after a WBUR investigation found that the statute designed to protect victims has instead protected alleged abusers. WBUR's Ali Jarmaning has more.
7: The law was supposed to ensure the privacy of victims by keeping records secret. But it's also made it harder for survivors to get access to those documents, which they need to file restraining orders or fight for custody of their children. State Senator John Velas says those unintended consequences are unfair to victims.
10: Have there been some circumstances, albeit unique circumstances, where victims are actually being
21: hurt as opposed to helped?
7: His legislation would create a task force to review the statute. WBUR found the law allows police departments to withhold documents that show how police respond to domestic violence calls, even in cases where someone was later killed.
23: I think the challenge is that because of the way
10: that the law is currently written, are we missing out on things that could go a long way to preventing something like this from happening again?
7: Mary Fairbairn was allegedly killed in a domestic violence homicide three years ago in the small town of Groton. She was 57. Her husband is awaiting trial. Her sister, Ann Donahue, wants to see closer scrutiny of how police deal with domestic violence. But she doesn't have high hopes for a task force, at least how it's currently proposed. It felt like a big nothing burger. I don't see that wrapping up or providing any substantive legislature
25: in the very near future, which is when we need it.
7: Police were called to the Fairbairn's house twice in just the week before Mary was killed. But details on how they handled those calls are locked away from the public eye. Groton police refused to provide records about how they responded before Mary was killed. They cite the privacy law. More than a dozen other police departments with domestic violence homicides withheld records too. Donahue says information about how police respond should not be hidden.
8: How do we know that they did everything that they were supposed to do? How do we learn as a person or, you know, as a community if we don't learn from our mistakes and we don't see those mistakes if they're buried?
7: Advocates for victims are also pressing for change, but they want the task force to include more survivor voices. Nine of the 10 proposed members so far are designees of law enforcement or lawmakers. Hema Saring-Saminski is deputy director of Jane Doe, Inc., a statewide survivor advocacy group. She says there's tension between privacy interests and survivors' need to access their own reports.
25: Those are the sort of Pushes and pulls that we are grappling with and trying to ensure that with whatever approach we either take or decide to kind of table that we're really making sure we have thought about any of the possible potential outcomes and consequences.
7: One option would be following the Connecticut model, making the records public to all, but withholding names and addresses of victims. Massachusetts could also keep domestic and sexual crimes off public police logs, but make reports available to anyone who requests them. There's still much more discussion to go before any change can happen. Most important, Saring Siminski says, is including survivors' voices in the conversation. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmaning.
0: Here with WBOR coming up at 820 on Morning Edition. The fighting in Sudan has led to thousands of people fleeing to neighboring Chad, where refugee camps have sprung up in the scorching heat. We hear some of their stories. It's 7:50.
10: Hey, it's A. Martinez from Morning Edition. Waking up your body every morning is hard enough, so why not make waking up your mind easier? Every morning, we bring you the latest news and headlines, plus a little something to make you smile, think, maybe even laugh, so you can get those neurons fired up for the day ahead. So wake up your brain with us. Listen to Morning Edition from NPR News every weekday.
0: Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson
0: top-ranked
16: in entrepreneurship by U.S. News and World Report, Babson's MBA prepares you to tackle global challenges. Babson.edu MBA and Bionova Scientific, GMP manufacturing services for biologics. BionovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Members of Congress are returning to Washington today to begin reviewing a budget deal to lift the nation's borrowing limit. In Ukraine, at least one person is dead and a dozen are injured in Russia's latest round of missile attacks in Kiev. And the Boston Celtics' championship hopes were dashed last night as they fell to the Miami Heat. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org.
9: WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, MathWorks.com MOS.
0: Upper 60s today under sunny skies. It's 56 degrees in Boston at 751. This is Morning
26: Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Faldin.
10: I'm Martinez.
26: And I'm Michelle Martin. It was May 31st, 1921. It saw the beginning of one of this country's most horrifying episodes of racist mob violence. Over the course of a few days, hundreds of black residents were killed in what's become known as the Tulsa Race Massacre. Survivors lost their livelihoods as a white mob set fire to 35 blocks of the Greenwood District, which was known as Black Wall Street. In recent years, historians and descendants of survivors have worked hard to revive memories of this all-but-forgotten chapter, especially during the centennial of the massacre in 2021. But our next guests say the legacy of what happened in Tulsa can still be seen in Tulsa today. That's the subject of Victor Lukerson's new book, Built from the Fire. And he's here with us now, along with Oklahoma State Representative Regina Goodwin, a descendant. Welcome to both of you. Thank you both so much for talking to us about this.
5: Thanks for having us, Michelle.
26: Thank you. Mr. Lukerson, I'm going to start with you. You tell the story of Greenwood largely through the Goodwin family. Why this family?
5: You know, too often, the Tulsa Race Massacre is reduced to statistics, Michelle. 1,256 homes destroyed, 35 square blocks burned. But this is really a story about people. You know, I know on my very first trip to Tulsa, um, I participated in a vigil and a march down Greenwood Avenue to commemorate the anniversary of the massacre. One of the folks I met was actually Regina Goodwin. She was really able to unspool for me this sort of epic family story about how their family had been moved to Tulsa from Jim Crow, Mississippi in 1914, about how her her great-grandfather, J.H. Goodwin had opened a grocery store right there on Greenwood Avenue, how that store was destroyed during the race massacre, but it was actually Regina's great-grandmother, Carly Goodwin, who, after the massacre, went to the courthouse and sort of demanded justice, filed Mm -hmm. a lawsuit seeking restitution from the city of Tulsa.
26: So, Representative Goodwin, as Victor just told us, you're a descendant of J.H. and Carly Goodwin. Do you know how your ancestors survived?
17: Yeah, yeah. The night of the massacre, my grandfather was graduating and my aunt, Anna, they were graduating from high school and they were in a play that night of the massacre and they heard that trouble was coming. They were able to leave that site and get to safety. And I know that my grandfather hid in a bathtub in the house. And also my great-grandfather, James Henry, he was very fair-complected. He looked like a white man. He stood on the porch of his own house and waved the mob away. And they thought he was a white man, so they weren't burning down white homes. They were just burning down Black folks' stuff. So that is how I'm told that they survived. And uh, they would live to stay in the Greenwood area and rebuild.
26: Wow, remarkable. Victor, can you describe Greenwood at its height? Like, give us a sense of what it looked like.
5: Sure. So Greenwood was really considered the Eden of the West in the early 20th century. This was a place where there were grocery stores, restaurants, and even larger enterprises. You know, one of my favorite Greenwood businesses to think about is the Dreamland Theater, You know, we also had the Stratford Hotel, which was one of the largest black-owned hotels in the entire United States. And the Goodwin family also owned the Jackson Goodwin Funeral Home, which had some of the fanciest funeral cars in the Southwest. So you really had enterprises both big and small making this community thrive early in the 20th century.
26: Well, but what about today, though? I mean, part of when, you know, you're talking about like 35 blocks of homes and businesses burned to the ground. It's disputed how many people were actually killed because there were so few remains. What happened in the years after the massacre?
5: You know, we don't know what Greenwood would have become if not for the massacre. We don't know what would have become of the Stratford Hotel, the Dreamland Theater, the Tulsa Star. But it is a blessing that we had families like the Goodwins who stayed and did rebuild.
26: You make the point in your book, and Representative Goodwin, you make the point that that what really kind of killed Greenwood as a business district was this expressway, this crosstown expressway that goes right through the business district. What what impact has that had?
17: Well, it is there after the community did rebuild. Then you had what white folks would refer to, some white folks would refer to as urban renewal, uh, black folks called urban removal, and all across the nation expressways that cut through the heart of Black communities. Uh, certainly you then kill the business. So what happened is they cut right through the heart of Greenwood. We have been able to, through the Biden administration, he has a program called the Reconnecting Communities Program. And he simply said in print that he was looking for communities where interstates or highways had cut through Black communities. When I saw that in print, I knew we had an administration that at least wanted to look at addressing the harm that was done in the past. So, Victor, what was the ostensible argument for this urban renewal strategy?
5: Blight was a term used by federal, state, and local officials to, in some ways, demonize properties in Black communities. If a property was deemed blighted, that meant the city, the state, or the federal government had the right to, to remove it, destroy it. And, you know, families really couldn't do very much about that. In the Greenwood case, it's kind of a tragedy because in the early era of urban renewal, there was so much positivity framed around it. There was the idea that the community might end up being rebuilt even bigger and better. But this federal funding for the rebuilding actually sort of collapsed when the Nixon administration came into power. And so Greenwood ended up having acres and acres of empty land that was kept in control by urban renewal authorities and remains so to this day. Even today in Tulsa, the urban renewal authority owns hundreds of acres of land in Greenwood and North Tulsa that hasn't been put to any use for decades.
26: Representative Goodwin, can I just ask you, what's your dream? What would you hope for for Greenwood?
17: Long story short is that we do see that, were we to remove that expressway, with the community land trust, there could be control for the historic residents, right? So that we could stem the gentrification that occurs. Look, I am a realist. I understand that uh, blocks now have been taken Uh, There's a big baseball field there. There's a big university right there in the heart of Greenwood. So I understand that's not moving. What I am saying is that we can stem the gentrification. Ultimately, what I would like to see is the historic residents, particularly Black folks, owning and living again in that Greenwood district, having more rooftops, having more small businesses. That is the dream. That's Oklahoma
26: State Representative Regina Goodwin. In addition to serving in the state house, she's a descendant of survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre. We're also joined by Victor Lukerson. He's the author of the new book, Built from the Fire, and it is out now. Victor Lukerson, Oklahoma State Representative Regina Goodwin, thank you both so much for talking to us. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin.
10: I'm mean, Martinez.
26: And I'm Layla Falden. WBUR
16: supporters include UMass Chan Medical School, ranked by U.S. News & World Report as best in New England for primary care education. Learn more at umassmed.edu. And the Coolidge Corner Arts Festival, returning for its 43rd year this Saturday, 11 to 6. Artists, music, food trucks, wine, and beer. CoolidgeCornerArtsFestival.com.
3: I'm education reporter Carrie Young, And this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Lawmakers are returning to Washington to vote on a budget deal that lifts the nation's borrowing limit and puts restraints on annual spending. It's Tuesday, May 30th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, Russia launched a pre-dawn air raid on Ukraine's capital, killing at least one person. Meanwhile, Moscow authorities said the Russian capital was attacked by drones. Also this hour, thousands of people who have fled violence in Sudan are enduring scorching heat in neighboring Chad.
22: People are trying to find shade, making makeshift shelters with branches, sheets of fabric, and plastic.
0: And the Celtics have missed their chance to make history with a loss against Miami at the Garden in the Eastern Conference Finals.
5: We didn't win, uh, which was our goal. So, but it's not because the guys didn't have a sense of togetherness, character, um, you know, and just who they are as people.
0: Sunny and upper 60s today.
2: It's 8:01 now. The news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The House Rules Committee is meeting today to discuss a proposed agreement over a bill lifting the debt ceiling. There is a time crunch to get it passed before June 5th, when the federal government is projected to run out of money to pay its bills. But as NPR's Deepa Shiburam reports, the bill still faces opposition from members of both parties.
24: President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy have come to an agreement on the legislation needed to raise the country's debt ceiling, but they still need enough support from holdouts on both sides of the aisle to get it passed. Biden spoke to reporters Monday and said he was confident the bill would pass by June 5th.
19: There's no reason why it shouldn't get done by the fifth. I'm confident that we'll get a vote in both houses
24: and we'll see. The White House says Biden has been calling members of Congress to drum up support for the legislation, McCarthy has said the House will vote to raise the debt ceiling on Wednesday. Deepa Shivaram, and PR News, Washington.
2: Republican presidential candidates descend on Iowa this week as the race for their party's nomination ramps up. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will make stops there today and tomorrow. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters reports former President Donald Trump will be there later this week.
27: It's the start of a busy week for DeSantis, who will travel to 12 cities in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, following his rocky campaign rollout on Twitter last week. DeSantis is seen as Trump's most formidable Republican challenger. Trump will be in Iowa on Thursday. The former president won't be holding a big rally. He'll speak to a conservative breakfast club in suburban Des Moines before holding a roundtable with local pastors. On Saturday, Iowa Senator Joni Ernst will host her annual Roast and Ride fundraiser. Senator Tim Scott, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy are among those scheduled to speak. Iowa still kicks off the presidential nominating calendar with its caucuses in early 2024. For NPR News, I'm Clay Masters in Des Moines.
2: The Republican-led Texas State House has impeached Republican State Attorney General Ken Paxton. He's accused of bribery and misconduct in office. Now, Texas State Representative Andrew Murr says members of the State House will present the case to the Texas State Senate, whose members will act as jurors for Paxton's impeachment trial.
20: We will manage this process with the weight and reverence that it deserves and requires. This is about facts. And the evidence, it is not about politics.
2: Paxton has denied wrongdoing. His impeachment trial will be held before the end of August. A man is on trial today accused of killing 11 Jewish worshipers at a Pittsburgh building that is home to three synagogues. Six more people were wounded in the shooting. Robert Bowers faces more than 60 federal charges. He is eligible for the death penalty if he is convicted. The deadly mass synagogue shooting happened in October 2018. You're listening to NPR News.
0: This is WBOR in Boston. I'm Rupa Chenoy. Congressman Seth Moulton is among the lawmakers returning to Capitol Hill today to review a new deal on the nation's borrowing limit. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy reached the compromise over the weekend. Moulton is critical of the cuts in funding to the IRS and new requirements mandating that some people work in exchange for federal aid. But Moulton says he thinks Democrats and Republicans in the center will ultimately come together to pass the plan.
23: At the same time, you're going to see extremists on both sides, far-left Democrats and also extremist Republicans on the far right, who find great political talking points in voting against this bill. And that's just not what we need right now. Every one of us in Congress can find something in this bill that we don't like. But we've got to come together to pay our bills, avoid default, and do the right thing
20: for the American people.
0: Congress must pass the deal before June 5th to avoid a national default. The Boston Celtics came up short in their bid at history. They lost Game 7 of the NBA Eastern Conference Finals to the Miami Heat. The final was 103-84 to last night at the Garden. More now from WBUR's Dan Guzman.
28: The Celtics were trying to become the first team in NBA history to win a playoff series after trailing three games to none. But things got off to a rough start when Jason Tatum says he sprained his ankle.
21: It just was, you know,
27: unfortunate fall tonight on the first play of the game and um, something I was trying to battle through uh, throughout the game.
28: He still played most of the game, but only scored 14 points. Celtics guard Jalen Brown says he feels he let the team and fans down.
6: You know, my team turned to me to to, to make plays, and I came up short. I failed, and it's tough.
28: The Heat will play the Denver Nuggets in the NBA Finals. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dan Guzman.
0: A new report finds that Massachusetts lawmakers have passed the fewest number of bills since the start of a legislative session in history. Ten pieces of legislation have passed since the session started in January. That's just half of the average by this point in the session over the last decade. Beacon Hill officials tell the Boston Globe the slowdown could be because important laws are being proposed at the same time as many other policies. Wildfires hundreds of miles away will put a little haze and smoke into our sunny skies today. Those fires are in the Canadian province of Nova Scotia. The haze should get worse as the day goes on. Meteorologist Robert Magnia with the National Weather Service says there are no official air quality alerts, but vulnerable people should take caution.
13: It's more of a nuisance, I would say. And again, it can reduce visibilities and just kind of result in uh, the hazy skies.
0: Smoke from wildfires in western Canada also brought us hazy and smoky skies earlier this month. It's 8.07.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at SertaPro.com. That's Serta with a C. And Perkins School for the Blind. Global Leader in Education for Children with Disabilities. Help more of them access education at perkins.org slash Lives.
0: The Red Sox are back home tonight to play the Cincinnati Reds. In your forecast, sunny with a high in the 60s today, clear overnight, and in the 40s, sunny tomorrow and near 80. We could hit 90 on Thursday and Friday. Right now it's 57 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR.
16: WBUR supporters include Data IQ. A platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com.
10: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A Martinez in Culver City, California.
16: And I'm Leila Falden in
11: Washington, D.C. Good morning. Some developing news overnight in Russia where officials there say Ukrainian drones attacked Moscow.
10: The Defense Ministry says eight drones were fired at the capital in what it called a terrorist attack by what it called the Kiev regime, and that all eight were intercepted. Meanwhile, Russia carried out another wave of air attacks on the Ukrainian capital this morning after launching some of its biggest strikes of the war yesterday and over the weekend.
11: Joining us now from Moscow with the latest is NPR's Charles Maines. Hi, Charles. morning good morning so what do we know about these drone attacks
29: well you know as you noted uh, the defense ministry says eight drones were spotted over the city and its surrounding areas earlier this morning Uh, even as media reports have that number much higher nearly three times as high Whatever the case, it seems some drones were intercepted by air defense systems. Uh, there's online witness video that NPR can't confirm, but appear to show a Russian anti-aircraft fire destroying two drones mid-flight. Uh, several other drones apparently got caught in trees and telephone wires as they approached the city. And then Moscow officials say at least three hit residential buildings. Uh, now, Moscow Mayor Sergei Sabyanin says no one was seriously injured, and although he's evacuated the buildings in question, uh, and cleanup crews are picking up debris and assessing what appears to be fair. Fairly minor damage. Mm -hmm. Uh, Meanwhile, Russia's investigative committee says its investigators are also out collecting evidence.
11: Now, let's talk about the timing here. It does come a day after massive Russian strikes against Kyiv, right?
29: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, You know, Kiev has denied any direct involvement in the attack. Uh, but many here, of course, will obviously blame Ukraine. Uh, that's already the conclusion of Russia's defense ministry, as you've noted. Uh, they say this is a terrorist attack by Ukraine. Now, keep in mind, this follows weeks of renewed Russian airstrikes on Ukraine's capital, including a Russian drone attack on Kiev early this morning that Ukrainian officials say left at least one person dead. And finally, uh, let's remember, this isn't the first attack on Moscow. Uh, Earlier this month, the Kremlin was targeted by a drone attack, and what U.S. intelligence later assessed was likely carried out by Ukraine, uh, even if Kiev denies it.
11: And has Russia's President Vladimir Putin weighed in on these attacks?
29: Not yet. You know, we'll see what President Putin or his spokesman has to say later today, I assume. Uh, but in general, you know, Putin's been relatively quiet of late when it comes to the war in Ukraine. Uh, there was a statement to the Kremlin website earlier this month where he paid tribute to Russian fighters involved in what Moscow says was an important victory in the eastern Ukrainian town of Bakhmut. Uh, but Putin said nothing, for example, about a large-scale incursion by Ukrainian-aligned fighters into the Belgorod region of Russia that borders Ukraine. That happened last week and that incident uh, along with a series of unexplained attacks on russian infrastructure oil refineries railway lines you know that's all created this this growing sense of uncertainty i think over the government's ability to protect the homeland uh, particularly as ukraine prepares for its long rumored counteroffensive you know, and while those drones over the capital this morning uh, whoever was responsible will play to those same fears i'm sure some here uh, may also see it as an opportunity you know an opportunity to to gin up russian anger and, and possibly through that anger support to continue the war at all costs
11: npr's charles Maines in moscow reporting on the drone attacks over moscow there thank you so much for your time thank you this happened in china today
15: Three, two, one, fire.
10: A rocket blasted into orbit with three astronauts on board. They're headed to China's new space station to relieve a crew that's been there for six months. Among the three is the first civilian to be sent into orbit by China. The country's space program is run by the military, so for them, this is another milestone.
11: To discuss more, we have NPR's John Ruich with us from Shanghai. Hi there, John. Good morning. Good morning. So this civilian, who is he and why is it so important that he's going up to space? Yeah,
28: it's a bespectacled professor named Gui Haichao, who's 36 years old. He teaches at Beihang University in Beijing, which is China's premier aeronautics and astronautics university. He actually got his bachelor's degree and PhD there as well in aerospace engineering. And then he went on to do postdoc work in Canada. Uh, he's on this mission as a payload specialist, so he's not navigating or flying, uh, but he's basically going to be conducting science experiments. I called Quentin Parker, who's a space scientist at the University of Hong Kong, to ask how significant this is. Uh, he says it's important uh, because it sort of opens a new chapter for China's ambitious space program.
13: If you've got, you know, a, a, an orbital uh, space station like the Chinese now have, which is basically a very large science laboratory, then the kind of equipment and payloads they have up there are very sophisticated technological and scientific equipment, sometimes quite delicate. It needs to be operated and understood and managed by people and know what they're doing. And these are the, you know, these are the scientists.
28: These are the scientists. you got to remember, up until today, all of China's astronauts came from the military.
11: Now, you mentioned this program is ambitious. What exactly is China planning?
28: Well, look, I mean, their first manned space mission was in 2003, right? 20 years later, they now have an operational space station. Uh, they've gone from basically one crewed mission every two or three years to now they're doing one every six months to to change a crew at the space station. they picked up the pace. They've sent a rover to Mars. They've sent various crafts to the moon, brought back moon rocks. And they just announced plans to put a Chinese person onto the surface of the moon by 2030. Mm. By the way, the U.S. is also trying to do some of this same, same stuff, including getting a Americans back to the moon.
11: Okay, so how does all this fit in with the tension and competition between the U.S. and China? Is this a new space race?
28: Right. It's a little more complicated. I asked Dean Chang about this. He's a senior advisor with the U.S. Institute of Peace.
10: The original space race was, at the end of the day, only a little bit about a science and a whole lot about whose system was better. Ours or the Soviets. Fast forward to today, we are seeing aspects of that coming back it's not quite space race 2.0 but yes in the background is a political competition
28: Yeah, so there's a political competition. You know, one thing that does make people nervous, not only is China's space program developing quickly, but it's very opaque. China issues white papers on space every few years. The last one was last January. It didn't say anything about the military side of the program. The white paper also did not mention putting people on the moon. Uh, And just this week, they said they're going to do that within seven years. You know, another example, this guy, Gui Haichao, the first civilian to go into space with China's space program. They didn't announce that that was happening or that it was going to be him until yesterday.
8: Hmm.
11: NPR's John Ruich in Shanghai on the Not Quite Space Race 2.0. Thank you, John. (laughs) You bet. Uganda has passed one of the world's most severe anti-gay laws under the new law Anyone convicted of engaging in same-sex relations could face life in prison And if someone is convicted of so-called aggravated homosexuality, they could even get the death penalty That's defined as same-sex relations involving HIV positive people Joining us now to talk about the implications of this new law is Richard Lucimbo, an LGBTQ activist based in Uganda. Good morning, Richard
21: Uh, Good morning And thanks for having me on the show.
11: Thanks for being here. I want to get your immediate reaction when you heard that this had been signed into law by the president.
21: It was um, a moment of uh, distress, but also of uh, utmost uh, shock uh, after learning that the president had uh, signed uh, the law. But also I was worried and concerned the fact that this... Uh, really takes away from the progress of protection of human rights as a country.
11: Is there outside influence in promoting anti-LGBTQ attitudes in Uganda?
21: Yes, absolutely. Uh, There's been a lot of influence from uh, evangelicals uh, from the United States who've been pushing for uh, anti lgbt notions in the country. Uh, I'll give an example Uh, individuals like uh, uh, Scott Lively who are very instrumental in the drafting of the first law that was nullified in 2014 and in fact uh, a Ugandan LGBT uh, organization did sue Scott Lively in the federal court of Massachusetts for their role and we have seen other groups like Family Watch International uh, that are headed by another American uh, who have are really been pushing for this uh, notion in the country.
11: And Scott Lively is an American evangelical. Now, experts say the new law threatens Uganda's AIDS response. Do you agree with that?
21: Yeah, no, absolutely, because we have seen uh, the fact that it has a broader and vague language. It puts even business people, even any individual who may be visiting the country under LGBT, and I think that makes a lot of sense for people to be staying out from, from the country. But also uh, different countries that are providing aid, they wouldn't be willing to support a government that is criminalizing its own people. But of course, the taskpayers will also be demanding answers. And I think this is where we find ourselves as a country in a very tight and peculiar situation because of this legislation.
11: Richard Lucembo is an LGBTQ activist in Uganda. Thank you so much for your time.
21: Thank you so much for having me.
11: Tomorrow on Morning Edition, after more than a year of sanctions over the war on Ukraine, Russia's economy has remained surprisingly strong. But could the bunker economy become a thing of the past? Listen where you are, on your phone, your computer, your smart speaker, or on the radio. This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. I'm Rupa Chenoy. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WPUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, leaders of both parties are scrambling to convince lawmakers returning to D.C. to support a two year budget deal reached to avoid a federal default. It's 819.
25: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Discover how the Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, can help physicians improve efficiency so they may be more effective with their patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR.
10: The debt ceiling deadline is quickly approaching.
17: If they actually default, that's catastrophic. I mean, it, the markets will respond. Um, you know, people may actually not get a check
10: personal finance columnist Michelle Singletary on what it means for your money if the U.S. government can't pay its bills. I'm Anthony Brooks. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: Get the news delivered to your email inbox every weekday morning with our WBUR Today newsletter. This morning, learn about the key points in the upcoming budget debate on Beacon Hill and find out about the ferry service resuming today from Winthrop. Sign up at WBUR.org slash newsletters. Sunny with a high near 68 today. Tonight, mostly clear and a low around 48. Tomorrow, sunny and warmer with a high near 78. It's 57 degrees in Boston at 820.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline how businesses can attract, interview, and hire candidates. More at indeed.com slash NPR. From CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. From Prompt, with a mission to help students get into their top choice colleges, Prompt's one-on-one application and essay coaching is designed to help students write compelling essays and college applications. More at myprompt.com. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
10: This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez.
11: And I'm Leila Falden. The Darfur region in Western Sudan is a vast area that's been traumatized by decades of genocidal violence. Now it's suffering again. While Sudan's capital Khartoum has been the epicenter of the recent conflict between two warring generals, those fleeing from Darfur have been sharing accounts of the brutal and underreported fighting there. Thousands of people have been making their way over the Sudan border to neighboring Chad, and that's where NPR's Africa correspondent Emmanuel Akinwotu brought us the this report, and it's an important listen, but I do want to warn you that it includes some graphic descriptions of violence.
22: I've just arrived at Gungu, where about 10,000 refugees have spread around in clusters across a vast area and essentially the desert. It's about 110 degrees. It's scorching. People are trying to find shade, making makeshift shelters with branches, sheets of fabric and plastic or clustering under the few trees that still have enough leaves to provide shade. Gungur is just one of several camps that have sprung up along the border in Chad. For thousands of Sudanese people here, ordinary life has been destroyed or put on hold. When the UN first arrived here a few weeks ago, there were only two to 3,000 people. Now that number's tripled, and the numbers coming across the border are rising every day. The speed of the refugees coming across the border gives an illustration of just how intense the fighting is in Darfur. And the violence has been brutal. Communication has been scarce, with phone networks down. But the accounts of refugees I've spoken to offer a glimpse of it. This is Ahmad Ismail, a 55-year-old farmer from Darfur, and while a crowd of refugees gather to listen, he speaks in Masala and tells me about what led him here. He left Sudan before the conflict reached his town and fled with almost all of his family, everyone except for his 20-year-old son.
14: When
22: someone told him his son was taken by fighters, he took his donkey and rushed back to Darfur. He found him hiding in their abandoned home and was relieved he was alive. But then relief turned to horror at what his town had become. Mystery was virtually empty, he tells me. Entire homes had been burnt to the ground or looted. He blames this on who he calls the Arabs or the Janjawee. That's the name of the militia that evolved to become the Rapid Support Forces who are now at war with Sudan's army. In the space of a few weeks, much of the town had been completely wiped out. They rode by several bodies covered in blood that lay strewn along the roads from Mysteri to the Chad border. Many of the bodies had gunshot wounds, but some of them were alive. So he and his son carried three of them onto their cart and took them back to (laughs) Gungu.
16: (laughs)
19: Ali Tahir
22: Mohammed is 55, and like Ismail, he's from Mystery. When he heard that fighters were approaching, he and 21 members of his family fled with nothing but the clothes on their backs. He tells me the Janjaweed were just killing people, anyone. A woman searching for herbs, children fetching water. But etched in his mind are the atrocities he's witnessed in Darfur, not just recently, but over several years.
29: I saw with my own eyes the killings in my town. In 2021, they came and burned it down and killed about 70 people.
22: The atrocities in Darfur have a long history and so do the many actors. The Sudan army and the RSF are now at war. But in the early 2000s, they were united, fighting on the same side under the direction of Sudan's former president Omar al-Bashir. United in a genocidal fight to crush a rebellion in the Darfur region. That conflict and cycles of atrocities since then sparked a huge refugee crisis. And now we're here again.
20: My
15: name is
22: Aisha Youssouf work works for the Red Cross. And she tells me in French through a translator what she's witnessed in the camps several cases of trauma and children who've escaped
20: alone.
17: So the stories that have really stuck with me are the children without any adults, who came by themselves. Yesterday, I met a a one-and-a-half-year-old who
2: came with her big sister, who's only 13 years old.
22: A queue of refugees line up with buckets and bowls at a water tank, bought by the World Food Programme. The help is vital, but it's not enough. As the number of refugees rises, so does the pressure to support them. Before this conflict, there were already 400,000 refugees from Darfur in Chad, one of the poorest countries in the world. Now there are almost half a million, and resources are stretched. The UN wants to move the refugees from border areas to camps further inside Chad. But it's a slow and difficult process. (laughs) And while the new arrivals wait in Gungur, the sound of weeping spreads through the camp. There's no way to call their relatives and loved ones from Darfur. But sometimes news trickles in. These women have just found out they've lost a father, a grandfather. They sit under a tree and comfort each other. From a high slope in the desert sand in Kungur, you can see the milky outline of hills in Darfur. But for many refugees, to return there feels like a distant prospect. Ismail says he'll never go back. Everything he built has been lost. He says he's not been able to think about the future since he arrived in Chad. But the most crucial thing is that he's safe. Back there are a lot of armed groups, armed men. But here, since I arrived two weeks ago, I haven't seen anyone with a gun. Soon the rains will come, making access to the border more difficult and an exodus for refugees more fraught and on both sides of the border, history repeats itself. This conflict has left a troubled region in more turmoil, and a new generation of refugees prepare for life in camps just a few kilometers away from home. Emmanuel Akimotu, NPR News, Farchana, Chad.
0: This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 8.45 on Morning Edition. WPR's Simone Rios was at the Garden last night for Game 7 of the NBA Eastern Conference Finals. He tells us what it was like there as the Celtics missed their chance to make history. It's 8.29.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. The Babson MBA helps you become a professional who takes action, leads with confidence, and tackles complex global challenges. Acquire the highly sought-after entrepreneurial mindset with a Babson MBA, ranked number one in entrepreneurship by U.S. News & World Report. Visit babson.edu slash MBA.
4: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are urging members of Congress to support their debt ceiling agreement. A vote in the House is expected tomorrow night. The Speaker says 95 percent of Republican lawmakers support the deal. GOP Congressman Ralph Norman of South Carolina says he's not one of them.
12: We're going to have to have amendments. I know Speaker McCarthy won't say close rule with no amendments. The bill as is is unacceptable.
4: Norman was speaking to NPR's Morning Edition. He's a member of the conservative House Freedom Caucus. Police in Hollywood, Florida say one person is in custody following yesterday's shooting that left nine people injured on a beach boardwalk there. Veronica Zaragovia with member station WLRN reports.
24: Videos on social media showed wounded people on the sand getting help from police. Others ran in panic on what's called the Broadwalk along Hollywood Beach. Deanna Bedineschi with the Hollywood Police Department said the victims received hospital care.
0: Preliminary investigation reveals that this was, there was an altercation between two groups that resulted in gunfire. Using
24: Twitter, the mayor of the city thanked the public, paramedics, police, and emergency room staff who helped the people with injuries. For NPR News, I'm Veronica
0: Saragovia in Miami.
4: This is NPR News.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A proposed task force would examine whether to change a Massachusetts law that keeps secret all police records of domestic and sexual violence. The move comes after a WBUR investigation found that the statute designed to protect victims has instead protected alleged abusers. More now from WBUR's Ali Jarmanning.
7: The task force proposed in the state legislature would review the law and make recommendations to, quote, ensure confidentiality of domestic violence survivors without protecting perpetrators. WBR's investigation showed that police departments also cite the law to withhold records of officers accused of misconduct. Hema Saring is deputy director of the survivor advocacy group Jane Doe, Inc.
25: Harm doers hiding behind privacy protections that were intended for survivors is certainly a big concern to both survivors and advocates.
7: Saring Siminski says any task force should include the voices of survivors too. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani.
0: The trial of the man accused of killing a Weymouth police officer begins today. Prosecutors say Emmanuel Lopes shot and killed Sergeant Michael Chesna in 2018 after a minor traffic crash. He's also accused of killing 77-year-old Vera Adams as he fled. She was sitting on her porch. The Norfolk District Attorney tells the Patriot Ledger that jury selection will take place in Worcester because of the high-profile nature of the trial. A nonprofit that provides medically tailored meals is expanding. Community Servings is building a distribution center in Mansfield. That should help it increase the number of people it helps. It served meals to more than 6,000 people last year. David Waters is the group's CEO.
9: Providing food is not just a response to food insecurity, it's a health care issue. The broader movement is about how do we improve people's diet to prevent illness, but also treat illness with medically tailored meals.
0: Waters hopes to see the new facility up and running by this fall. It's 8.33.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty, on stage now through June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House tickets at bostonballet.org.
0: The Celtics trailed early in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals last night and never recovered. They lost the Miami Heat 103-84 to at the Garden. Boston failed in its bid to become the first NBA team to ever win a series after trailing three games to none. At Fenway tonight, the Red Sox will host the Cincinnati Reds. In your forecast, sunny and a high in the upper 60s today. Tonight, mostly clear skies and it may dip into the 40s. Tomorrow, sunny and and upper 70s. It's 57 degrees in Boston. At 8:34, you're with WBR.
18: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Your Part-Time Controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your Part-Time Controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from the Nature Conservancy. Partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions.
11: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C.
10: And I'm a. Martinez in Culver City, California. Lawmakers are back in Washington to vote this week on the debt ceiling deal struck by President Biden and Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy over the long weekend. Now, if approved, the deal would avoid an impending default and suspend the nation's borrowing limit until after the next presidential election. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis has more about what's in this deal. Susan, I know D.C. is the capital of the country, but it's also maybe the capital of uh, deal making in the United (laughs) States as well. So put this one in perspective. How big is this one?
24: You know it's a pretty modest agreement there's no major structural reforms in the bill that would fundamentally change how the government spends money but it does aim to put the brakes on it at least in the short term these savings largely come from putting caps on discretionary spending over the next two fiscal years for basically everything but the military and that a has generally tended to be good news for the country because it usually makes government shutdowns off the table And the new Republican House majority can certainly claim some political victories here. There are provisions that cut planned funding for the IRS. They're gonna enact tougher work requirements for certain adults to receive benefits like food stamps, at least for a few years. And it would end the current pause on student loan repayments that began during the pandemic. But even added up, those things don't make much of a dent in the national debt, which is still primarily fueled by spending on programs like Medicare.
10: And bipartisan Washington deals usually means you know, everyone gets something, but no one's happy about what they have. So who's not happy right now?
24: Well, the Republicans' right wing and the Democrats' left wing are voicing the loudest opposition, but that's pretty typical, especially when it comes to spending deals. Um, Many on the left are angry about provisions that weaken environmental protections and the focus from Republicans to restrict aid to the neediest of Americans. Already about a half a dozen Republicans have come out opposed to it because they say it doesn't do enough to address the debt. Uh, That's an important number because it already tells you that the speaker is going to need some combination of Democrats to pass this in the House. He only has a four-seat majority But with Democrats in control of the Senate and the White House, from the very beginning, it was clear there was just no way a final deal could come together that didn't have Democratic buy-in. So, no, it is not a major conservative victory for many in the House Republican conference, but it's probably as realistic of a deal as divided government can produce these days.
10: But are Republicans in the House going to maybe hold Kevin McCarthy's feet to the fire on this?
24: You know, they certainly could. His job overall doesn't seem at risk over this particular deal, but, you know, it's volatile. There's going to be some test votes in committee, likely later tonight. One of the things uh, we're watching is if former President Trump comes out for or against this deal, that could certainly factor into how many rank-and-file fu- rank Republicans weigh their votes. He still has a lot of sway among most Republicans and when the vote ultimately happens, yeah, it's going to be watched pretty closely to see exactly how many Republicans are standing behind the speaker. And, and I think it could be seen as a measure of support about how much uh, he has behind him in the party at this time.
10: And on the other end, Sue, so considering that President Biden supports this, uh, is it safe to assume enough Democrats will get on board to make sure it passes both the House and the Senate?
24: It looks that way for now. You know, Democrats are mainly happy that the White House beat back Republican efforts to repeal major parts of the president's Inflation Reduction Act, particularly provisions that relate to climate change. A minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries in the House has already said he expects some measure of Democrats are going to support it. Obviously, they're going to help the president. In the Senate, it's been interesting because the leaders there played almost no role in cutting this deal. They basically said, hey, if Biden-McCarthy agree, we'll put it on the floor. That seems to be what's happening. Republican minority leader Mitch McConnell already praised it, said he's going to vote for it. Many Senate Democrats are not going to be happy with less spending on domestic programs over the next couple of years. But that looks like it's going to have to be a fight for another day.
10: That's NPR political correspondent Susan Davis. Susan, good to check in with you.
11: You're welcome. Republican presidential hopefuls are in Iowa this
10: week. They'll be hitting the state hard with speeches and events to make their case to voters, as Iowa is still set to kick off the primary season with GOP caucuses early next year.
11: Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters is covering all the campaigning there and is on the line with us. Hi, Clay.
10: Good
27: morning.
11: Good morning. So who's making appearances there in Iowa?
27: Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will be here today and tomorrow, hitting several cities in the state. He's been in Iowa a couple of times, but this will be the first time he's been here since announcing he's running. Of course, DeSantis is still seen as the biggest threat to Donald Trump, although there's still a decent gap between them in recent polls. Trump will be here Thursday speaking to a conservative breakfast club at a restaurant, followed by a chat with local pastors, which is, you know, much different than his normal rallies we've become accustomed to. He actually canceled one last minute a couple of weeks ago here. His campaign said it was because of a severe weather potential. All the action ends on Saturday with a bunch of the candidates at the bottom of the polls. That's when Iowa Senator Joni Ernst holds her Roast and Ride fundraiser features a motorcycle ride, a pork roast, and then speeches from people like Senator Tim Scott and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, amongst others who are running.
11: What are voters telling you about these candidates?
27: Well, first off, you know, it's, it's early. And keep in mind, those coming to these campaign events are among the most politically engaged in the state. But right. talking with these folks this early can give you kind of a read on how the race may take shape later on. You do have voters who are ready to move on from Trump. Here's a mother and daughter I talked to as they were leaving a campaign event for Tim Scott. Last week, here's Judy Bergen and Krishna Fair from Sioux City.
7: I voted. I respected Donald Trump. He did what he needed to do, but I, I don't want him to be our for our next nomination for the Republican Party.
27: That being said, there are also a lot of voters this cycle who seem to already have their mind made up. They want Trump back in the White House. Last month, I talked to Jolene Rosebeck at the Iowa Faith and Freedom Coalition dinner.
24: It feels a little different to me, but like, yeah, I'm going to listen to everybody, but I don't think my mind's going to change on who I
27: want. She said she kind of sees the other candidates running in a race for vice president. Hmm.
11: What makes these campaigns different from the ones that Iowans saw ahead of the 2016 and 2020 elections?
27: For starters, the Republican Party has just changed so much with Trump at the head of the party compared to eight years ago. And then obviously a former president running for the nomination again makes this very different. Trump was a known entity eight years ago when he was first running, but he had no political record. Now he does. He also has sparking an insurrection of the U.S. Capitol on January 6th on his record. Mm. The multiple criminal charges he could face, and certainly that's largely just noise to Trump's base, but it's on the mind of voters that I've talked to. Uh, Then the other big difference for Iowa this time around is that the Democratic and Republican parties here are fighting over like the one thing they've agreed on for decades, and that is keeping the Iowa caucuses first in the nation. Now, the DNC voted to boot Iowa out of the early window, uh, but their calendar is currently in chaos. Governor Kim Reynolds, a Republican, has until the end of the week to sign a bill that could deny Iowa Democrats their kind of like last Hail Mary to try and stay in the early window. So you have a fight among the parties over how to run a caucus happening. At the same time, all these Republican hopefuls are descending on the state this week.
11: Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters. Thanks, Clay. Yeah, you're welcome. This is NPR
0: News. You're starting your day with WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, we hear from one of the skeptics of the deal reached to avoid a devastating federal default, Republican Congressman Ralph Norman of South Carolina. Sunny in upper 60s today. Skies may get a bit hazy from wildfires in Nova Scotia. Tonight, it may fall into the 40s. Tomorrow, clear skies in upper 70s. Right now, it's 58 degrees in Boston.
25: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by CERTA Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's CERTA with a C.
0: MassBio plans to diversify the state's biotech industry with a new program for people with high school degrees or GEDs. Zach Stanley with MassBio says students will be ready to start entry-level jobs in the industry as soon as they complete the 12-week program.
13: We expect graduates
27: from our program will be ready on day one for jobs in things like facilities
30: management,
27: lab operations, supply chain and procurement. And these are roles that are much in demand, but also offer great opportunity for upward advancement and promotion that will turn them not just from jobs, but into lifelong careers.
0: Applications for the program will open in September with classes beginning in January. It's 844.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. And Merrimack College, committed to providing teachers with MED degrees, credentials, and personalized career-long mentoring. Online.merrimack.edu. This is
0: WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Chakravorty. The Boston Celtics got so close to making history last night, but fell short. They crumbled in Game Seven of the Eastern Conference Finals, losing to the Miami Heat 103 to 84. Boston failed in its attempt to become the first team in NBA history to win a playoff series after being down three games to none. WBUR's Simone Rios was at the game last night and joins us now. Good morning, Simone.
6: Good morning, Rupa.
0: So, what was it like inside and around the garden last night?
6: Oh, it was electric going in there. You know, everybody I rubbed shoulders with was just like glowing at this feeling of of inevitable victory. You know, coming off of this miraculous, literally three seconds to, to game six, you know, on the Jumbotron they were showing images from the 2004 red sox comeback against the yankees when they you know made history by coming back from 3-0 and they kept flashing this unfinished business mean. You know, referencing the Celtics loss in the NBA finals last year. This was the year when we were supposed to win it all in Boston.
0: And then I hate to ask, but what was it like as the hope slowly faded?
6: Yeah, the the crowd was more and more pacified as the night went on. And then, it, you know, as time winded down, it just became more and more funereal. You know, by the seven minutes to go mark, people were were filing out. And then, And then came the booze.
0: So what went wrong?
6: The very first play of the game, our best player, Jason Tatum, comes down and sprains his ankle. And later in the press conference, apparently it was so swollen, we learned, that other players could actually see it. Um, On a great team, somebody would have stepped into Phil Tatum's shoes, but that did not happen. Um, Guard Malcolm Brogdon summed it up to, Really coming short on on defense.
2: It, it was the issue. This was a team in last year that uh, prided themselves on defense. I think defense was their calling card. And this year, offense was our calling card. And I don't think you win championships with a better offense than you have a defense.
6: Yeah, but even that great offense during the regular season was miserable last night. They went zero for 10 three-pointers in the first quarter. Zero for 10, you know, and and that really set a a tone for the rest of the night.
0: So Joe Missoula, the Celtics rookie coach, is taking mm-hmm. a lot of the blame for the loss. And he tried to deflect attention away from the players, his players last night. What did they have to say about their coach?
6: Look, they weren't going to say much, but they, they tried to voice some, you know, support for the coach. But, um, you know, every one of the players was just stunned by how bad the team did um, earlier in the series. The Boston Globe had this headline calling for Joe Missoula's ouster. Um, And, you know, whoever wrote that headline probably felt vindicated by last night's meltdown. But let's listen to Jalen Brown. Uh, He expressed support for Missoula, saying that, you know, he respected him for coming in as head coach this season right before the season started um, and right after the Celtics lost the NBA Finals. You know, and that's a tough position for a guy to be in. It's a tough position for a team to be in, Um, you know, coming off of a finals run. But we didn't make any excuses, and I'm not making any excuses now. We came up short. um, But I still give my respect to our coaching staff and that group that we had on the floor. And Tatum also pointed out, in his view, people don't give Missoula enough credit for getting to Game 7 of the conference finals. And he said he thinks Joe did a great job.
0: So this caps... A really tough last few years without a championship mm. to show for it. What do you think comes next?
6: Yeah, it, it's hard to imagine that there won't be at least some changes coming, you know, including possibly um, from from our number two player, Jalen Brown, whose contract expires this year. Um, we've seen many other NBA teams parting with their head coaches after playoff losses. But, you know, the Celtics feel like their window to win a championship is still open, you know, led by Tatum with all kinds of talent around him. Um, They have to figure out what worked and what didn't this season and figure out how to right the ship. But, you know, for now, it's uh, the players and, and probably much of New England is in mourning over what could have been, you know this is going to be a tough one to recover from.
0: WBOR Simone Rios, thanks very much. It was a heartbreaking loss for Boston Celtics fans, but we appreciate you being here to tell us about it.
6: Hey, my pleasure, Rupa.
0: Coming up at the top of the hour on WBR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest from Kyiv on Russia's new offensive against the Ukrainian capital, plus the investigation into the origins of COVID-19. It's
25: 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Science. Visit mazes and brain games and challenge the relationship between the mind and eye in a richly interactive experience for all ages. Tickets at mos.org and Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Video games can get a bad
24: rap when it comes to kids and mental health, but their impact on child development is often misunderstood. You can use games to improve your social connections and to practice feeling emotions that we normally avoid, like guilt or grief or shame. Hear that story on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today
16: starting
0: at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Lawmakers returned to Washington today to vote on a deal that would raise the nation's debt ceiling. The Justice Department is ordering people who participated in the January 6th insurrection to pay fines to offset donations they received from their supporters. And the Celtics' season ended short of the finals last night after they lost to the Miami Heat. The BBC will have the top global headlines in 10 minutes and stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9. WBUR on the WBUR mobile app and at WBUR.org.
9: WBUR supporters include Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick.
0: Upper 60s today under sunny skies, upper 40s tonight, then clear skies and upper 70s tomorrow. It's 58 degrees in Boston at 851.
30: According to hard data, the surge in homelessness in recent years is a result of economics. People simply can't afford a place to live. Marketplace Morning Report
8: is supported by Odoo, a full suite of integrated business management software dedicated to helping businesses of all sizes with billing, accounting, CRM, and e-commerce.
30: Odoo.com I'm David Brancaccio in Los Angeles. First, the deal to raise the debt ceiling, hashed out by President Biden and Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, faces its first big test today, where, to go forward, it would have to make it past the House Rules Committee. Marketplace Washington reporter Nancy Marshall-Genzer has more. The
16: House Rules Committee sets the terms for consideration of a bill. Some Republicans on the panel have already come out against the deal to raise the debt limit. The House is expected to vote on the agreement tomorrow. If approved by the House, it'll go to the Senate, where it also faces opposition. Democrats say it pairs back spending too much, while Republicans don't think it cuts enough. There are also new work requirements for some people receiving food stamps, and the IRS has to give back some money earmarked for catching tax cheats. A number of senators have already said they'll introduce amendments. If the Senate makes any changes, the debt limit bill has to go back to the House. All of this has to be done before June 5th, when Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the government will run out of ready cash to pay its bills. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace.
30: Stock index futures to start this shortened week of trading are up. NASDAQ futures are up 1.3%. Stock and computer chip maker NVIDIA is up 4.8% in pre-market trading now. NVIDIA makes chips that power those two words of the year, artificial intelligence. S&P futures are up tenths percent The high-profile founder of the Silicon Valley medical startup Theranos is set to report today to federal prison in Bryan, Texas. 39-year-old Elizabeth Holmes was sentenced to 11 years for defrauding investors. Theranos made false claims about its finger stick system that was supposed to make blood tests easy. Marketplace Morning Report
8: is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by UiPath, providing organizations the UiPath AI-powered business automation platform. More at UiPath.com Marketplace. UiPath, the foundation of innovation.
30: The current deal forged to raise the U.S. government's debt limit, again, if approved in Congress, holds spending flat on what are labeled discretionary programs as it limits growth in the federal budget in the coming years. This week here, we're looking at one crucial corner of public policy that housing advocates and people without shelter will argue needs a lot more money. Our focus this week is called Finding Your Place to explore homelessness from a variety of angles. Let's start with some eye-opening data. Greg Colburn is an assistant professor at the University of Washington's College of Built Environments and co-author of the recent book Homelessness is a Housing Problem, How Structural Factors Explain U.S. Patterns. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Let me go through a couple possibilities for how many people explain what's happening with homelessness in america now substance abuse is that the dominant driver
20: there are probably three dominant narratives i would say substance use is right at the top of the list poverty and mental illness are probably the other two there's clear evidence that those factors and attributes increase the risk of experiencing homelessness at the individual level but what we demonstrate in the book is that is not why our coastal cities have really really high rates of homelessness
30: you've gone through the data you've gone through the data across the country and what then would explain it
20: well what we argue in the book is that access to affordable housing is the primary driver of homelessness and in places like seattle san francisco los angeles boston new york washington dc access to housing is very very limited even with people with good incomes and what happens then is, is when housing is scarce it's not available and it's very expensive if you're vulnerable in any way you're poor, you've been discriminated against because of your race or ethnicity, you're physically disabled, you're mentally ill, you're far more likely to experience homelessness. And what we demonstrate in the book is that the reason Seattle has five times the per capita rate of homelessness of Chicago is not because we have more people with vulnerabilities. It's because our housing is really expensive and it's scarce.
30: Yeah, because when you talk about housing access. Let's just be clear. You're talking about numbers of possible dwellings, but you're also very much talking about supply and demand. You're talking about how much it costs to find adequate housing.
20: That's exactly right. And one of the more interesting stories that we tell in the book is Detroit, Michigan, which is the most impoverished city in the United States, has far lower rates of homelessness than very affluent communities like Seattle and San Francisco. And the reason for that is, is that housing is relatively affordable in Detroit as compared to other places. So, I mean, you've
30: been confronting this data for a while now. I mean, where are you left in terms of the areas that are most ripe, for making policy changes that would help this is it making it easier to build relaxing zoning rules and other rules like that
20: there's a couple levers that we could pull one is certainly a regulatory lever which is we need to think about our land use and in many of our cities we have to confront the fact that we've had relatively exclusionary land use in the sense that we've only allowed single family housing on many of the residential parcels in our cities and that's going to have to change our cities are going to be have to be denser we're going to need to go up we're going to have to have more people living on each parcel in order to accommodate all the people who are in these cities. We also have to confront the fact that there's a significant segment of the population who will not be able to afford market rate housing. As a society to date, we've kind of said, well, that's tough. We're going to let the market figure this out because we have such a small program that provides housing to low income households. And so we need to confront at the federal, state and local level. How are we going to ensure that there's housing that people can access and either that is giving people subsidies, or it is subsidizing housing that's affordable for people with lower incomes. And the scary thing about that is that's an expensive endeavor, because housing is expensive to construct, and it costs a lot every month. And so that's a reckoning that we as a nation are going to confront. And to date, we haven't done a very good job of that.
30: Greg Colburn is an assistant professor at the University of Washington's College of Built Environments and co-author, along with Clayton Page Eldern, of the book Homelessness is a Housing Problem, How Structural Factors Explain U.S. Patterns. Professor, thank you. Thanks for having me, David. Our series this week is called Finding Your Place, New Thinking for People with Nowhere to Live. Also today, we'll look at the Biden administration's plan to end homelessness and that's the stated goal. Stream it on demand from Marketplace.org if you miss that piece on the air today. Our producers are James Graham, Ali Dalbert Hansen, Ariana Rosas, Alex Schroeder and Erica Soderstrom. Our senior producer is Meredith Gerritsen Morby in Los Angeles. I'm David Brancaccio with the Marketplace Morning Report. APM, American Public Media.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by TechFusion Ransomware, helping you when your data is held hostage through ransomware and cyber attack. TechFusion, where data is never lost.
25: I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.